Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Job, chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find the Lord, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has felt fast his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 66. We will read responsively by whole verse. Be joyful in God, all you lands. Sing praises to the honor of his name. Make his praise to be glorious. Say to God, how wonderful are your works. Through the greatness of your power shall your enemies cower before you. For all the world shall worship you, sing to you, and praise your name. O come and see the works of God, how wonderful he is in his doing toward all people. He turned the sea into dry land, so that they went through the water on foot. Therefore in him let us rejoice. He rules with his power forever. His eyes keep watch over the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who holds our soul in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the snare and laid trouble upon our backs. You allowed men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out into a place of plenty. I will go into your house with burnt offerings and will pay you my vows. Even those which I promised with my lips and spoke with my mouth when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fattened beasts with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks and goats. Come here and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I called to him with my mouth and gave him praises with my tongue. 
If I had inclined toward wickedness with my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. But God has heard me and considered the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not refused my prayer, nor turned his mercy from me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. The gospel this morning is from John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here. See my hand. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but instead believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet also have believed. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We're continuing in Peter's letter to the elect exiles, Christians who were living as foreigners in the midst of the Roman Empire. If you want to follow along, grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you want to follow along but didn't bring a Bible, grab a blue one from the table in the back. Last week, I talked about Peter starting off this letter by, by greeting the people he was writing to and reminding them of who they were, that they were elect exiles, to use his words, that these were people who had been set apart by God for God's purposes in God's creation. And then, and then he went on in that, same, in that same verse to remind them that they are inheritors of all of God's blessings, that they have an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and unfading. It means it can never go away. And so that's who they are. They are exiles and they are heirs. And that sounds great. It's a great way to start a letter, and it also happens to be true. So it, it's more than just sounding great. It is great. And just because it's a truth that they can't see right now doesn't make it any less true. But then Peter immediately pivots to another truth, and and this is the one that he is holding up as equally true as the first thing. And this is the one that they can see in front of them. It's the idea of, of testing. It's the idea of going through times of trial. Basically, he's talking about the reality of suffering. And so with these two truths, what Peter is doing here at the beginning of this letter is, is kind of setting out the scope of what he's going to be talking about throughout the course of his letter. N.T. Wright says that the, the first few verses of this book are fixing the length and width of this letter, kind of fixing the dimensions of what he's going to talk about. So first he says that these people that he's writing to have been called by God and heirs with Christ and saved by the Messiah's blood. Awesome. But then secondly, he's very clear that you are going to go through various times of trials and testing in this life. That's, that's basically Peter's parameters of who we are. That's, that's kind of his dimensions of what the Christian life are. It's the shape of our life in Christ. But as you read passages like this, it's easy to ask yourself, why, why does it have to be this way? Like, does it have to be this way? It, if God is so great, and he is continually, constantly, building his, his church and constantly calling a people to himself, then, then if that's true, why should bad things happen to us? Like, shouldn't we be protected in this, like, this, this, this resurrection life bubble? Shouldn't we, if we're going to be called as his sheep and be, be protected by the great shepherd, shouldn't we be safe in this pasture? Shouldn't we be safe all the time? I used to do this, this thing at my, at my last church called Pub Theology, and every month there would be a bunch of us, and it was open to anybody, um, there would be a bunch of us who would gather in a local bar, 
and we would kind of just discuss the, the big, important, hard questions of God. And sometimes there was a specific topic, and sometimes it was just kind of people bringing whatever questions they felt like they could never ask in church. Um, but it always, 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 the conversation would always end up at the same place. And it never, actually it would end up at one of two places. Um, it would either end up at predestination versus free will, which is not our topic today. Um, or, and that's a really easy one to solve, by the way. But, or it would end up at, at the problem of evil. Especially among the household of faith. If God is so good, and he's calling us into this life, then why do bad things happen to us? Why do, you know, and, and people would just come with, with what was going on in their lives. Why did my dad die? Why did my wife leave me? Why did I lose my job? It's an understandable misconception that when you're seeking God's will for your life, when you're actively seeking to follow him, that, well, now it seems like you're probably under his protection, and so life will probably get better. It's understandable that we think that way, like, because we're always telling people, both each other and the world, like, come into the church, come into this ark that God has built for his people. Come in. And it's true. I mean, that that's what the church is. And it's also true that God has protected us in, in, the, in the most important but invisible ways, in the cosmic ways, that he has protected us from an eternity apart from him. And yet we are also promised, like it's a promise. We are promised that in this world we will have suffering. Peter just assumes it as a, as a given. He takes it as a given that there's going to be suffering in this world. Right there in, in verse 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, that is, in the, in the inheritance, in the blessing, in the salvation from God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, although it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter doesn't say, if you suffer, then do these things. He says, when you suffer, this is what the suffering is for. The Apostle James, later on in the Bible, does very much the same thing. He's just taking it as a given that there is going to be suffering in this world. The book of James starts out with a great sentence. It says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Jesus himself talks about this. He says to his disciples in John 16, he says, in this world, you are going to have trouble. But then he goes on to say, but take heart, because I have overcome this world. So why do we, do, why do we go through these times of testing and trial and suffering? The Bible is very clear on this. It is a time of refining. It's a time of shaping. It's a time when, when God is putting us into this crucible to shape us into more of who he wants us to be. When I was growing up, the only thing I knew about a crucible is that it was a title of a play and a movie. I didn't know what it was. And, and a crucible is the pot or the vessel that you put a piece of, 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 of uh, metal into to melt it, to refine it, so then you can shape it for what you want it to be. 
Why do we go through times of trial? Why do we go, why has God put us in these crucibles? Is it, is it because he's mean? Does it make God cruel to put us in these times of trial? Well, as I was thinking about that this week, um, do me a favor, look at the, at the front of your worship guide if you have one. It's a picture of a gold and silver jug. It's from about the year 1150 BC, which is really impressive that they were able, like I couldn't do that today. And they were doing that around the same time that David was getting, was getting anointed the king of Israel. So it's a gold and silver jug, and when it starts out, it's just hunks of metal that they pulled out of the ground. It's veins of metal running through other rocks. How does it become a jug? It, it gets refined. It gets put into a crucible and melted down, and the, the impurities that are in it start to get skimmed off. So what was once just bits of rocks and metal, once it's refined, it can be shaped into what the silversmith wants it to be. So the question is, was the silversmith cruel to that hunk of rock, those bits of metal, by putting them into the crucible to shape them into something even better than what they were? We forget sometimes that God made us, that we are his creation, that he is the potter and we are the clay. And because sin entered into the world, so did suffering and death. If Adam and Eve had never fallen into sin in the Garden of Eden, these times of trial and testing and suffering wouldn't be necessary. But sin and suffering and death are in the world, and God uses that sin and suffering to shape us. It says, you have been grieved by various trials. This is verse 6 again. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials and tests that we go through, these crucibles of pain and loss, are designed to actually refine us, to make us stronger, and to form us into who he wants us to be. Some of you know that, that before I did this, that I used to work for many, many, many years in the restaurant business. And in several of the places that I worked, I had to learn a lot about wine. And one of the things that I was fascinated to learn early on was this. You would think, at least I thought, that, um, that if you want to raise, if you want to make the best wine, you have to start off with the best grapes. And if you want to get the best grapes, that the best way to do this is to put them in the richest and most fertile soil that you can find and then give them everything that they could possibly want. Give them as much sun as they could want. Give them as much shade as they could want. And certainly give them as much water and nutrients as they could want so that you could grow these plump, fat, happy grapes and then make delicious wine. Absolutely not how you make good wine. I, I, I learned this from a, a winemaker and it just fascinated me. To make the best wine you really need to stress the vines almost to the point that they're unhealthy. If you want really good wine, you have, to, you have to deprive them of things. You have to test them. You almost have to shape them like little bonsai trees. And so you stress the vines, you deny them things, and then they produce these small, concentrated, rich grapes that end up making incredible wine. It's a beautiful product that comes from times of testing and stress and trial. So the challenge for all of us as human beings is to find similar meaning in our times of testing and stress and trial. And the thing is, 
it, if the Bible's not true and if God isn't real, then, then the bad things that we go through are random. They are meaningless. They're empty. It's just, it's just chance. That's the real cruelty. But if the Bible is true, then, then we can see that these times of suffering and testing can actually change us into more of who God wants us to be. It just happens to be that this is the part of the epistle that we can see with our eyes, right? Like when Peter was saying that you are heirs in Christ, that you are, that you are elect children of God, and you will also suffer. Like the suffering part's the one that we can see. The other part's the invisible part. The other part is where faith and belief comes in. And that's what Peter's getting, part of, getting at in the second part of this passage here. Peter was one of Jesus' original disciples. Peter spent at least three years being with Jesus almost every single day. He walked with him, and he ate with him, and he learned from him, and he listened to him, and he talked to him, and he could touch him. But the people that he's writing to, none of them have ever met Jesus in all likelihood. Like, this was probably at least 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and 500 miles away in what's now Turkey. So it's hundreds of miles, it's dozens of years. The people that he's writing to have never, ever laid eyes on Jesus of Nazareth. But they love him, and they trust him, and they've sworn their allegiance to him. And they want to more closely follow him. And Peter commends them for this. The visible and the, and the invisible. He's saying that they, are, that they can embrace the invisible reality as much as they're embracing the visible reality. And this is why this letter is really good news for us today and why it's so great for us to read as a 21st century church. Because none of us, I think, have ever seen Jesus with our own eyes. None of us have touched him or eaten with him or traveled with him. But much like these churches in Turkey, we can still faithfully cling to the promises. We can faithfully grow in our worship of him and we can faithfully seek to more closely follow him. And Peter goes on to, to, to give these people wonderful news, saying that, that in the Old Testament, a lot was written about God's promises and the human condition. A lot was written about how God had promised his people a rescuer and, and a redeemer. He promised to his people that even though they were unfaithful, he was going to be faithful. Even though they turned their back on him, he wasn't going to turn his back on them. And he promised that he, would bring that he would bring restoration and renewal and his justice and mercy. And that it would be through someone called the anointed one. That's the word that they used for it. And that this anointed one was going to suffer. That it was all part of the plan. That he was going to suffer and that through that suffering, we would be reborn and restored. That's what, that's what a lot of the Old Testament is about. And Peter is saying to these to these churches of Jewish Christians in Turkey, 20, 30 years after Jesus died, he's saying that those prophets, all those stories and, and prophecies and narratives from the Old Testament, written hundreds or even thousands of years before, were primarily written for the people who've never seen Jesus. For those Jewish Christians in Turkey that have never had a chance to, to walk with Jesus of Nazareth. It's an incredible gift to feel like you're part of this long chain of history. To feel like, and to feel like God 500, 1,000 years before 
was, having, was causing something to be written down that was specifically for you. It's a great gift, and it's to remind us of this other reality that we can't see. The two realities, exiles and heirs, and suffering. We can see the suffering, we can't touch or taste or talk to the fact that we are exiles and heirs. It's to remind us of the other reality that we can't see when we are in the midst of the first one, when we're in the midst of times of trial and suffering. Think of the story of Job from the Old Testament. We heard a little bit of it read. If you don't know the story, I'm going to give you like a, a one-minute summary. Job is a faithful man of God. And, and at the very beginning of the book, Job is held up by God when he's having a conversation with the accuser, or Hasatan, or what we call Satan. God and, and the accuser are having a conversation. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's an incredibly faithful man. And Satan says, oh, okay, well... The only reason that he's faithful is because you've blessed him, because you've built this hedge of protection around him, because you've so richly blessed him that, of course, he has no choice but to, to give praise back to you. And God says, no, Job would still be faithful even if he had nothing. Satan says, oh, really? And God says, I'll tell you what, I will allow you, I will allow you to have your way with Job. You can't touch a hair on his head. You can't kill him but you can, you can have your way with him to try to prove your point. So within about 10 verses of the, first, of the first chapter of Job, Job has lost everything that he owns. He's lost all his camels, he's lost all his sheep, and he has lost all of his children. And we spend the next 40 chapters hearing Job and his friends debate the situation as to whether or not God is good. That's basically the, the crux of the book of Job. In the midst of that, we heard this part from Job 23 where, where Job says that he, can't even, that he can't see God, that he can't even perceive him. He feels incredibly alone. And yet, even in the midst of that, in the midst of this monologue that he has, he's able to remind himself that God is unchanging and unchangeable, that he is sovereign and that he is in complete control of his creation. And so that means if he was good when he was blessing me, then he must still be good even in the midst of all this that I'm going through. Job says that he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. And so at the end of the book, Job's fortunes are restored, and then he's even richer than, it, than he was at the beginning. And he has more children, more than he had at the beginning. And everything in Job's life has, is even better than it was before these times of testing and trial. And yet... Even at the end, and this is fascinating to think about, even at the end, Job never, ever, ever finds out why all this happened to him. At no point does God come down and say, now that, you've, now that, that you're back to the, being in the, the land of blessing, now that you've passed my little test, I'm going to tell you all that, that what, what all this was about. He doesn't do that. Job just sees that he's successful and happy and blessed, and then all of a sudden has nothing. And then after a period of time, is successful and happy and blessed again. And he dies, presumably, without ever finding out what it was all about. And yet, he had faith in God. Despite not being able to see or hear this conversation between God and the accuser, despite never able, being able to see that true reality of the fact that he was already an elect heir, 
He was still living in trust. It's what Jesus said in the gospel. When Thomas finally believed that Jesus was raised from the dead after touching the nail holes in Jesus' hands, putting his hand into the spear wound in Jesus' side, and he says, my Lord and my God, it really is you. You're the same body that I saw him kill, and now you're alive. Jesus says, have you now believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, and and kind of the implication is how much more, how much more blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. And so Peter is talking to these exiles in the same way. He's saying, how blessed are you, you elect exiles and heirs, because you trust in this greater reality, the invisible one, even though you've never, ever seen it. And so in that way, he's talking to us too. Blessed are you, you elect exiles, you heirs of this promise, because you trusted in this greater reality that you've never seen. And he says, how blessed are we to receive the whole story, that God caused all of this to be written down and preserved so that we could understand it, so that our eyes so that our eyes could, as as Peter says, so that our eyes could be guided by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that caused it all to be written down in the first place is the same Holy Spirit that guides us into this truth. And so when we see the whole picture, that that our life is one of blessings and sufferings, that the normal pattern of our life is one of blessings and sufferings, it also makes sense that, much like Job, that the normal pattern of our life would be, would be times of worship and questioning. Worship and questioning. That it, it helps us to see the crucible seasons as, as formative rather than just random, cruel chance. Something that would, would crush us. Because we can know what the problem was. The Bible tells us the sinful condition of mankind. We know what the promise is. The promise is the Messiah and redemption. God's plan to reshape and restore. And we can see who that Redeemer was. We just can't see him today. So what does all this this mean for us? Two things. First, it means that there really is a God who not only created us, who not only understands us and the world that he created far better than we do, but also that there is a God who entered into that creation, entered into the world as one of us, and then executed his plan for renewal and glory by his own suffering, by his own trials, by putting himself in that crucible. So when we have times of suffering, we can very clearly acknowledge that it hurts. We don't have to be, it's always my temptation to be, but we don't have to be stoic and This is nothing, this doesn't affect me, everything's fine, I'm fine. We can acknowledge that it hurts, because of course it hurts. We can acknowledge that we are in a crucible of pain. And we can even pray to God to deliver us. There is nothing wrong with that. We just prayed it in our college this morning. We pray it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Save us from the time of trial. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus himself, the night before he was arrested and killed, Great Father, if there is any other way that we can do this than what's about to happen, can we please do that? But then he went on to say, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. 
So in those moments of, of times and trial, in those crucibles of pain, we can talk about them. We can talk honestly about them, and we can cry out to God with them. But we can also know that God is using it for his purposes. I have been in some moderately hard crucibles in my life. I've had seasons of testing and pain. And some of you have had moments or seasons or even years of genuine and deep suffering. But even in the midst of those darkest moments, we can be confident that God knows exactly where we are. Even in this lifetime, it ends up that we, like Job, are never able to figure out why God led us through those moments. So that's the first takeaway, is that in the crucible of pain, we can still trust that God is a gracious God. The second thing is this, the second takeaway. This kind of helps us to realize what the church is all about. Two pastors uh, named Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry have a wonderful podcast about the gospel and the church. And this last week, Ray said that the church is supposed to be the gospel plus safety plus time, which is a really interesting way to put it. And he said, you know, we can say to a brokenhearted sinner, hey, I told you the gospel last week. How come your life isn't together yet? Like, why are you still doing the same, the same dumb sin you did last week? And we can say it to someone that is just living in this season of, of a crucible of suffering and trial. You can say, hey, I told you last week that God's working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. Why are you still sad? You, I told you the news. Why the long face? But that's not what our shared life in Christ is. I think Ray Orland is right. I think the, the, the church is the gospel plus safety plus time. And so if that's true, this is actually good news. Because if you are going through a time of testing and refining and trial, it is not designed to be fun. I'm sure that that hunk of silver going into the crucible to make that silver jug did not particularly think it was enjoyable. But we have one another in those times. Whether it's a trial from God or a, or a temptation from within you. Whether it's a terrible situation brought on by someone else or sinful behavior. When you have the church, you have allies. You have burden bearers. You have people who can go through this with you. That's, that's the gospel plus safety plus time. And so, when you are in the midst of pain and suffering, you are not alone. And so my urge to you is, reach out. Tell someone. Trust, trust the church enough to tell someone. Ask for help, and then ask again, and then keep asking. And if, conversely, you're in a season, like Job at the beginning or the end of the book of Job, where you have relative peace and prosperity, then know for certain that there is someone in your church who is not there. And so offer help. Reach out with that, with that offering hand again and again and again. Offer it indiscriminately, knowing that God is blessing you so that you can be a blessing to someone else. So that's my, that's my hope for this week for you. If you're in the midst of pain and suffering, reach out. And you're, if, the, if you're in the midst of a season of plenty, reach out. 
And as Peter is going to keep coming back to over and over again, you kind of see it in the shape of 1 Peter as we go through it. This is all about our shared life together, our shared worshiping life together as strangers and exiles, living in one world, but paying homage to our true king of our real kingdom. So those who have need and those who have means are in this constant posture in his church of reaching out and accepting. They're in this constant dance of, of coming together, bearing one another's burdens, meeting one another's needs. And then all of us together are reaching those things up to God, lifting one another up in prayer, and also lifting up our praises to God, even in the midst of those times. It's tough to be happy when you're in a crucible, but joy is possible even in the midst of a time of refining and trial and sorrow. And so we come together to reach out to one another. We come together to reach things up to him. And we actually can even find ways to thank him, as counterintuitive as it sounds, we can find ways to thank him for those crucible moments because we know that it's through this defining that that new things are created. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that you would increase our faith in the invisible reality of, of who we are and what you are making us to be. We ask that you would strengthen us in the times of trial and refining. We ask that you would remove, like Job asked, that you would remove the bitterness that's easy to crop up in those times of trial and refining. And Father, we thank you that that whatever crucible you have, you have put any of us through, that it is nothing compared to what you put yourself through. And so we seek to follow Jesus more every day, glorying in the fact that, that our redemption and that his glory came through his suffering. Bring us together in that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.